Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. Today's scripture is probably very familiar to many of you, as Jesus talked about what a good neighbor is. In fact, many years ago on Baptist Men's Day, I preached on these verses. Uh, but I preached on the ones that passed them by and the ones that stopped and helped. I understand today we'll be hearing a different lesson of the one that needs help, the neighbor that needs help. So I ask that you listen with new ears today the scripture from Luke. Just then a lawyer stood up to, the, to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. When he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Steve, I didn't realize you had preached on the same text, but I'm grateful. Okay, good, good, okay. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to know that those of you who were here have heard a sermon on one perspective of this parable. And if today's lesson doesn't speak to you, then don't worry, it'll roll around again in the lectionary in a few years. That's the grace and the gift of the lectionary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Diana was showering her gratitude all over the place like the reckless sower that Jesus talks about, the one who scatters the seeds on all kinds of ground. She was shouting it out to her dog and her neighbors and her husband and God and anyone who could hear all at the same time. As she shouted, the feelings of fear and grief that preoccupied her mind and body these last four days were overwhelmed by a far more powerful thing, gratitude. It had been four days of panic as Diana and her family searched for their dog, Rembrandt. One of the hottest days of the year, 
And sweet old Rembrandt was in the backyard and had discovered a hole in the back of the fence and escaped without the family seeing it. In fact, they didn't notice he was gone until it was far too late. Their stress mounted as meteorologists predicted a significant heat wave and urged everyone, especially the elderly, to stay inside where it would be cool. Rembrandt had aged quite a bit in the 10 years since Diana's family picked him up from the shelter and his body was beginning to slow down already. This was not the time for a grand disappearing act or a big adventure. So while the rest of Memphis, Tennessee was hunkered down indoors with ACs blazing, Diana's family was out walking the streets in the sweltering heat, praying that Rembrandt would be found. One day a stranger called. He had seen the lost dog posters that the family had stapled to all kinds of surfaces. The neighbor had seen Rembrandt taking him in for a day and fed him before he escaped again. Then a second neighbor reached out saying they'd seen him stumbling down a street suffering from dehydration. Upon receiving that phone call, Diana's husband drove to the house, picked up the dog, and immediately took him to the vet while Diana stayed home and kept a very worried vigil by the front window. It seemed like forever, but finally the car pulled up in the driveway and Diana raced outside, threw open the door to the car, grabbed Rembrandt from the seat, nearly crushing him in her embrace. His eyes told the truth. He was glad to be home. What was lost had now been found. And all Diana could say was thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Though the words seemed to flow freely and effortlessly, almost even recklessly from her lips, Diana knew somewhere deep down that the words barely even got close to describing the gratitude that she felt for this gift that she had now received. Rembrandt was alive thanks to the charity of neighbors and strangers alike. Rembrandt was alive. He was fine. And now Rembrandt was home. How could she ever repay the stranger who took in the dog and fed him until he ran away again? How could she ever repay the neighbor who spotted the dog and reported his location and waited with him until Diana's husband was able to get there in the car? What could she do or say or give back in response? The truth is, there wasn't a gift big enough to compare There wasn't anything even close to compare to the gift that she had been given. Have you ever received a gift like that? Have you ever received a gift so big or so generous or so meaningful that you know or knew you can never possibly repay it? Since ancient times, we have asked ourselves that curious question, how can I ever repay? How can I say thank you enough? 
And we ask that curious question because gratitude has long been understood as an essential part of a system of reciprocity. A transactionary existence that must remain balanced to avoid dependency or indebtedness or inescapable vulnerability. Words we don't even like to say, much less feel. When a gift was or is given, the beneficiary is obliged to give something in return, a thank you gift. Or maybe if you're a good southern southerner, not necessarily girl, but southerner like me, maybe your parents taught you to write thank you notes for everything, maybe even a thank you note for the thank you note. Anyone been caught in that cycle before? A cycle to balance the scales and get the relationship back on equal footing. The ancient philosophers Aristotle and Seneca speculated about gratitude as a divine virtue while placing ingratitude in a category of kind of a severe social violation. In their world, gratitude was more than just a personal obligation, and ingratitude was a whole lot worse than just bad manners. Gratitude as transaction was the very foundation of the ancient society. Gratitude was not just a feeling. It was the law. In the 1700s, we began to think differently about the place of gratitude in the public sector, having experienced the failures of ancient monarchical systems and the, and the futures of liberalism and democracy, capitalism and individualism still unwritten. In the 1700s, John Locke argued that public life and politics should be separated from gratitude and all its gifts and favors and the idea of quid pro quo. But gratitude did not disappear despite its banishment from the political realm. No, it merely moved over into the private life where it became something of a soft virtue, meaning a sentiment or an emotion, a feeling, something to be shared primarily within the context of neighborliness and friendship. In other words, gratitude was domesticated. In recent years, we have discovered the problems with trying to put gratitude in one of these boxes, though, either as public law or requirement or private emotion. Some now argue that gratitude is neither, but it is a discipline that should be removed from the emotional realm altogether, while others respond that to remove it from the emotional realm is to deny its origins, which are found deep in the heart of humanity. You see, gratitude lives in us, in our heart, in our gut, in our very existence. The word itself, gratitude, is akin to grace. The two words both come from the Latin root gratia, or the Greek root charis, Charis, of course, was the name of a Greek goddess who bestowed gifts of charity, beauty, joy, festivity, and song. But in addition to being the name of such ancient goddess, the root word also had great theological significance. Gratia and charis mean unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, a gift we could never earn. 
a gift for which there is no comparable thank you. Gratitude was never meant to be a transaction to balance some kind of theological scale. Gratitude is the word that attempts to describe our response to a gift of grace, an unmerited favor. Of course, no single word could ever adequately summarize the experience of receiving that kind of gift, which is why we tell stories, why we sing songs, why we share testimonies of such encounters. Through these methods, we try our best to find examples to convey the way that grace feels when we are the recipients of it and the way gratitude feels when we begin to live our lives in it. That is what Diana did when she belted out, thank you, thank you, thank you, after receiving a gift too good to imagine. Rembrandt, her beloved dog, returned home. And surely that must be what the wounded traveler in today's gospel lesson said when he woke up in that ancient hospital room and realized his life had been saved and his bill had been paid. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, he surely shouted as he began to look around for the person responsible for this tremendous gift, the person to whom he owed his very life. How could he ever thank him enough? You know, language is a funny thing, especially in the Bible. If we pay attention to the parable, we'll notice a pattern begins to emerge from the words. A man goes down from Jericho or from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the road he is beaten up and robbed and cast aside to die. A priest then goes down the same road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He sees him and passes by to the other side. A Levite comes along also down the same road, sees him, and passes on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey himself, saw him. And whereas the others passed by, the Samaritan saw him and felt compassion. The Samaritan saw him, and instead of passing by, he saw him and felt compassion. Compassion, a word used only a handful of times in the Bible, most of the time used to describe the way that Jesus felt when he looked upon the crowds or the individuals who came to him in search of healing. In fact, the only other time that this word is used to describe another human being other than the Samaritan who sees the man beaten and left to die has compassion upon him. The only other person in the Gospels that this word is used with is, can you guess it? The father in the story of the prodigal son. When the son returns home and the father sees him breaking the the horizon, the Gospel says that he sees him and has compassion upon him. Compassion, you see, like gratitude, Like grace is another one of those words that attempts to describe something uncontained, 
something uncontained by our heads or our hearts. It is bigger than our politics and our close personal relationships. Compassion, like gratitude, lives in our gut, and it's part of our whole human existence. Could it be that compassion is not only linguistically related, but is an example, an expression of gratitude itself, a posture of life, a way of being that is a perpetual response to the magnitude of grace that we have received from God. Could it be that the Samaritan knew what to do because he had also been the recipient of a gift too large to ever repay? And so rather than putting himself on an overwhelming, all-consuming, transactional kind of grace repayment plan, maybe he decided to reorient his life altogether, offering that same kind of grace to everyone in every time in every place. Could it be? Could this be his expression of gratitude? What if the Samaritan already knew what the Swiss theologian Karl Barth would say thousands of years later when he wrote, grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Grace follows, gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo, and gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. Grace and gratitude belong together. And if we want to be grateful people, we might begin by offering grace to one another. Grace to our friends, grace to our family members, grace to our enemies, and grace to our political foes. Grace to our colleagues, grace to our teammates, grace to those who really do deserve it, and grace to those who never, ever earned it. Grace scattered around and tossed about generously, extravagantly, maybe even recklessly, and us following the example of the sower who scattered seeds on all kinds of soil as if seeds had no cost at all. Grace, which together with gratitude begins to form a new kind of equation altogether. One that isn't concerned at all with a balanced scale between gift and giver, but instead offers a whole life of grateful living, which just widens our hearts toward greater goodness and love. Friends, the truth is, we are all beneficiaries of a gift that we cannot ever repay. We are all beneficiaries of the gift of life itself, the gift of God's love, the gift of salvation. These three meet us at our communion table time and time again, reminding us that no matter what we say or do, we can never earn our place in God's heart. This is a gift of greatest magnitude. It is a gift of grace too big to ever repay. 
And so we come to this table, the Lord's table, once again today, remembering Jesus, remembering his life, his death, his resurrection, all a gift freely given because, as John reminds us, God so loved the world. And as we draw near to this table, let us not forget that the word, remember how language is a funny thing? Let us not forget that the word used to describe this very table, Eucharist, also shares roots with grace and gratitude. Eucharist means we give thanks. And so as we prepare to receive this incredible gift once more, let us remember that there are no words sufficient and there is nothing big enough that we can say or do to give thanks, nothing short of offering our whole lives in gratitude and in response. So as we prepare to gather around this table and receive this amazing gift once more, let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day. Thanks for the extravagant love that you have shown to us in more ways than we can number. As we prepare to dine at your table once more, we also give thanks for the knowledge and the confidence that you will meet us here just as we are, where we are. And as you meet us here, O oh God, you call us deeper into your love, reminding us that your gifts of love and grace are never a transactional equation, but they are gifts that are holy and completely unconditional. Today, as we draw near, we ask that you bless this bread and this cup, allow them to nourish us body and soul, empowering us to live grateful lives in response to your grace, which is so wild and large and free that it is available to anyone, anywhere, and anytime. And so call us to go about our lives from this moment on, see, seeing others with compassion, seeking love in all that we do, and bringing about justice wherever we can, embodying your grace in every moment. Lord, pour out your spirit upon these gifts of food and drink, that by the sharing of this meal, and that in the receiving of these gifts, we might somehow be transformed into the body of Christ giving our whole lives as an offering to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen.